hello, welcome back to the Soundworks Collection video series. I'm Michael Coleman, and in this conversation, we're talking with composer Chris Beck. You might know Chris from his previous work on Disney Frozen, Marvel's Ant-Man and Ant-Man and Wasp, uh, Trolls, Peanut Movies, the 2011 version of the Muppet movie, which is my favorite. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about WandaVision, the new streaming series on Disney+. Plus. So Chris, thank you so much for, uh, for being here. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. I think you have a hit on your hands. I, I feel like WandaVision is like this incredible, people were excited, the hype was insane. When you found out, when they, like, let's go back, when they reached out to you, what did they share? What did they say? Because you you obviously have a track record with Marvel. What did you think? Well, back when I was hired, it was not going to be the first um, series for Marvel out of the gate on Disney+. Plus. Um, I believe um, the Thor uh, miniseries. Actually, it's not Thor. It's, um, it's um, oh, I think Falcon and the Winter Soldier was supposed to be first. Um, and I and I do remember getting called in for um, that first meeting, um, and you know they they were very very they couldn't share very much with me at the time, but they were very excited that they were doing something so different for them. Um, they did share with me the the aspect of the show where every episode would be emblematic of a different decade of classic sitcoms, um, and uh, in fact that's. That's kind of why they thought of me for it. Um, the the Ant Man movies t tend to skew a little bit more comedic, um, and uh, for for those of your listeners who actually do do a deep dive into my credits, yes, you'll find movies of every genre, but you will also find a preponderance of comedies. Um, that was my bread and butter for a very long time, and I think that's why um, Marvel thought of me for this um, because they were they were looking for somebody who was versatile enough. Um, to cover all these different genres in a way that was authentic feeling. Um, you know, they, they, they knew that they wanted to make these sitcom episodes um, as uh, loving an homage to those styles as possible. Um, and that includes, you know, every aspect of production, of course, including uh, the score. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've watched all every single Marvel film, all 100 of them, whatever's been released throughout the years. and. I still was kind of stumped by the backstory on Wanda and Vision because there's so much, there's an incredible genesis of information that comes along with their journey. And so after I've watched the first two episodes, I went online and spent so much time watching all the breakdowns and all the clues and Easter eggs. Were you aware of any of this stuff when, when you were in the writing uh, process? Um, it, that's funny. Um, I, I was vaguely aware of the amount of Easter eggs because occasionally um, they would spill over into me. Um, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to give anything away, but there are a couple of musical musical Easter eggs in some of the commercials, um, as well as in in the body of some of the episodes. Um, I do refer back to certain musical themes for certain characters uh, from the entire MCU, um, and some of those were my ideas. Some of those were um, were specific requests from Matt Shackman, uh, the director, and Kevin Feige, um, who of course is the head of Marvel. Um, you know, suggestions to refer to this theme in this spot or this other theme in this other spot. Um, but um, honestly, it was as, as much a surprise to me <laughs> as it was to you um, and everyone else, the sheer amount of Easter eggs in the show visually that, uh, you know, by the time the show comes to me and it's, and it's my turn to do my thing, um, you know, we're just talking about the sound and the music and, and the storytelling that I'm going to be doing and there isn't really um 
no one really goes out of their way to explain all those little visual details um, in the show um, because they don't really affect what I'm doing. Um, so it's been it's been really fun for me to go online too and check out um, all those Easter eggs that are, that people are noticing. Um, and also, frankly, it's been fun having seen the entire run of the show now, um, watching all, everyone online pontificate about their various theories about what's going on. Um, there are some pretty wild ones out there. And of course, the vast majority of them are way off base. Um, <laughs> okay, good. So, right. so it's really fun. It's really fun to watch that stuff. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, did you start with episode one when, I mean, was that your first one that you started on? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We, we went yeah. strictly in order, starting with episode one, although occasionally um, there would be um, certain changes that were made to episodes that would affect music. Um, that were already finished while we were working on a later episode. We'd have to go back and, and make some changes. But, um, you know, 95%, we went in order. That's awesome. Yeah, the reason why I ask is when it starts off, my wife and I, who is also a huge comic book fan or just movie comic book fan, she's like, what, what is this? What are we watching? Like, <laughs> yeah. it, it, like is, this how the whole, is this how the whole season is? I'm like, no, 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 I know. I, I, I know because I saw, like, the, the trailer, which – you know, alludes that we don't stay in is it the 50s. Is that the first episode, do you think, around that time? Yeah, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, episode four, which will have aired by the time uh, this comes out, yeah. um, is is the first episode that really goes completely away from the sitcom idea. Um, and it really gives us, it focuses on what's happening outside the town. Um, and, you know, the, the organization that is tasked with investigating what's going on inside the town. And you really get to, to see um, the backstory of what's happening there. Um, and in particular, the character of um, Monica Rambo, who, who we know as Geraldine in the first three episodes. How dare you? I haven't seen this episode yet. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, yeah, all right. sorry, <laughs> I'm assuming that if you're listening to this conversation now, the first four episodes are out, which um, is exciting to know that we're in a transition out. But I, there's a lot to talk about and unpack when it comes to the first three episodes. So the first one obviously is this, there's so many so many reference points, so many homages that we go through. There's a little bit of I Dream of Genie that later on, like, so knowing what you knew visually, what they were doing and how they represented it with black and white and 4-3 and, and everything else, where do you start to, to get the inspiration? Because the instrumentation, the style, I mean, there's so much fun elements in these in these pieces and in the, in the cues to, to pay tribute to that time and place. Absolutely. Um, the first thing I did was get some help. Um, okay. Any Marvel project um, that I take on, I need to assemble a small team um, because they are so labor intensive, especially toward the end of post-production when things just start to get chaotic and crazy. Um, and that's just, um, that's just the way that Marvel makes films. Um, you know, I wish I could tell them, um, you know, you guys should really make your films differently because your films will be much more successful if you do. But obviously, of course, um, it's one of the most successful franchises in movie history. They know what they're doing. And um, at this point, I'm just along for the ride. Knowing Marvel as I do, um, I, I assembled a small team um, to, to work on this, on this series as well. And one of the uh, composers I hired is a guy named Alex Kovacs who uh, really has a lot of experience with uh, these old-timey styles. He has a jazz background. He spent many years working for Bill Ross, who is a, um, um, a veteran orchestrator and arranger. He really understands how to get those, those old 
there's a lot of jazz voicings in those early um, in those early scores, um, and he really understood how to get that. So, um, you know, I brought him on and worked with him to create the sound. And we, you know, you're correct. Instrumentation is crucial. Um, we wanted to make sure that we kept the uh, ensemble size small. You know, they didn't hire 80 piece orchestras to score television shows back then. We made sure that we spotted the show mm. uh, in a way that was authentic. Um, there wasn't a lot of music in those uh, in those shows back then. So, you know, you maybe play in from commercial, you play out to commercial, and then a little bit in, the, in between here and there. Um, and uh, even going so far as to record and mix the music in a certain way, um, making sure that we don't go too hi-fi with it. Um, and and um, I know a lot of attention was paid similarly by uh, Bobby and Kristen Lopez for the for the theme songs in those early episodes as well. So when did you first find out about this project? When was the first indication? And then when did things really start picking up and, and production? You had a deadline and everything, deliverables. I, I think it was in the spring of last year, um, almost a year ago. Um, and um, that I had my first meeting and found out soon thereafter that uh, I was hired. And then in June, um, I believe is when they started shooting. And that's when I started working on some, some themes. Um, and uh, July, August, uh, we started it in earnest with uh, with episode one. It's been um, it's been a kind of steady drumbeat ever <laughs> since then. Um, I have to say, I am we we only this morning, a few hours ago, did our last uh, recording session um, remotely with the Vienna Philharmonic wow. with an eighty piece orchestra. Uh, you know, I mentioned back then in the fifties they didn't use eighty piece orchestras. Well, here in the twenty twenties, we do at least for Marvel shows. Um, so, um, I am literally only a couple days away from wrapping, mm -hmm. um, completely on the show. It's a very exciting time. It feels like major home stretch time, always a very exciting time on any big project. Um, and, uh, uh you know, the, as the episodes go on, as you can imagine, the role of the big music becomes uh, larger and larger, um, as as the the big events uh, of of the story start to overtake the sitcom aspects, that's great. Um, I'm thinking about some of the instrumentation, like vibraphone or like like the very like the things that are quintessential to that time period, um, or just you know when they were using these instruments really heavily. So, in your mind, do you take the instrument and find like do you start with that instrument or like how are you? slowly feeding in like basically the question is how do you write music a style of music when you're traditionally not asked to record or you know come up with that type of music like from a writing standpoint is it a normal approach or, or is it a kind of throw your approach backwards um well it's 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 a normal approach because on every film um i have to have uh through conversations with um the filmmakers um uh some idea of a grand concept for what I'm doing. And uh, admittedly, most of the time, it's not 50 sitcom music, but it's always something. Um, and, uh, you know, if I'm doing my job right, it's something that will help the score sound unique um, and distinctive and can inform the sound of every cue within the score so that it becomes a cohesive uh, type of a whole. Um, uh, on this project, a, a lot of, um, what I drew inspiration from were, were the themes from Bobby yeah. and Kristen. Yeah. Um, you know, on that on that first episode, um, the Dick Van Dyke show style, we really just went with that small orchestral ensemble, a lot of woodwinds, um, 
um, small string ensemble. Um, you know, another fun thing we did on that first um, episode was all the sound effects when, when Juana does her magic is actually music. So when she makes a gesture and picks up a broken plate in her kitchen that fell, you know, you have a little xylophone going, yep. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that sort of adds to the whole fun and cartoony aspect of it. Um, episode two is the I Dream of Genie, ep Genie episode, and that, that theme song has a little bit of a Latin flair to it. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like a bossa nova. So we introduced the bongos and the drums. Um, episode three is in the 70s, so now we have some guitar. Um, we have some electric piano. Um, I believe um, one of the commercials has a, a, a full-on disco treatment, actually, with, uh, with disco violins. Um, and uh, we just kind of proceed this way. The, 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 um, um, the inspiration comes from the themes, but also, um, you know, doing a little bit of research and a little bit of listening um, to the way those shows, those shows were scored back then. Um, making sure that we don't stray too far from uh, the authentic way that they were done. Yeah, the, the really interesting um, cue I love, which is the WandaVision, the end credits piece. Um, it starts off as tension, but then like the brass comes in and that feels quintessential Marvel. I don't know what I don't know what you guys are doing, but brass is like, when, however you play it, it's like we're in Marvel town now. Yeah. Like talk to me about like building something that needs to represent the Marvel Universe, the MCU but then be unique for Wanda. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite things about working for Marvel on the projects that I have done is, um, you know, um, so far um, I have yet to do a straight up superhero movie for them. <laughs> the Ant-Man movies had a heist vibe to them. Um, and uh, Wanda is a witch and, and her powers can be dark. Um, and, you know, you can already see even through episode three that um, there's there's uh, there's something foreboding going on here. Um, um, it's all not uh, daffodils and roses when it comes to her magic, and um, um, it's 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 nice to have that hook besides just you know here's French horns playing a typical anthemic theme. Yeah. Um, and uh, on WandaVision, I really tried to hook into the, the supernatural aspect of it, the dark aspect of it, but also her relationship with Vision. And that's yeah. why about halfway through that theme, we get into a very lyrical B section where the strings um, play a, a kind of an answer to her main theme, which is in the first part. Um, there are some spooky vocals in there, too, which is a nod to the uh, supernatural aspect of it. Um, and... Um, one of my favorite things about the theme actually is the main propulsive engine that propels the entire piece is a kind of high concept idea with um, interlocking string chords playing rhythmically. Um, you get the feeling of a kind of cascading waterfall falling over and over and over again with each bar. And that underpins um, really the entire piece from beginning to end. Um, as far as what makes a piece sound like Marvel, there's certain types of melodies and harmonies that um, that have become associated with the marble sound, um, particularly when you hear something on French horns, that's, that's, mm -hmm. that's uh, a kind of a hallmark of that sound. And I wanted to make sure, just as, it, as, as I did with the Ant-Man theme, um, that we didn't stray too far 
from the Marvel sound. I, I, do, I did want to remind people who are hearing it that this is still a Marvel show, even though it's dressed up um, in, in this sort of supernatural witchy clothing. Yeah, there's always the moments in the films and, you know, the, the non the feature ones when, you know, the Avengers are assembling and that cue hits and it's yeah. like breaks are off and there's no question of like this is a superhero film. So it's just, I'm, I'm interested to see how that evolves in the series because it's a little more patient. It doesn't have to be so big and bold. There's no yeah. crazy explosions. You know, it's, it's a very, uh, not, I want to say it's, yeah, it's maybe a little more patient because we, we had the time, you know, across the series. So now that you're wrapping up this this first season of WandaVision, I mean, maybe with a little perspective, what do you appreciate about the opportunity to work on an episodic versus um, a, a single title? Well, um, I believe that when you work on a project that has, I believe it's six hours of content spread over nine episodes, um, as a composer, it gives you a vast palette to explore themes. Um, and I would say as my career has gone on working on films, the importance of themes has increased gradually to me personally. Um, I, um, I love that thematic approach to scoring. Um, I love writing a strong theme and then finding 18 different ways to present it for 18 different situations. Um, and having had the opportunity on this show to, um, to understand the arc of the entire nine episodes before I even started, you know, unlike, um, you know, I got my start in television on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and that, that too was a strongly thematic show for me, but um, I didn't have the benefit of knowing the entire arc of a whole season. Um, I, I, I was flying a little bit more by the seat of my pants on that one. Well, Buffy, um, I mean, well, that's like what, six seasons? How many, how many, how many episodes was it? I was, it was, 150, 200, I don't know. I think I, <laughs> it's, personally, it's yeah. I personally only scored a hundred of them, about half of them, but um, yeah. I had a, like a three year run there. Um, and, Incredible. and sometimes like, you know, episode 11 would come up and I'd be like, Oh, that's interesting. These two characters are starting some kind of really, I guess we need a theme for these characters. Um, and maybe missed opportunities in earlier episodes to tease that theme um, and foreshadow a little bit what was to come. Um, but what was nice about WandaVision is um, I had the opportunity to really plan it a little bit better. Um, and as a result, I believe it's my most strongly thematic score to date. And by the time you get to those late episodes, you know, you've heard that end credit piece. And God bless Disney Plus for not putting the button. On, I agree. Like, end yes, yes, yes. Um, and yep. also God bless Marvel for just conditioning people to wait through those credits because I think there might be an end credit scene. And I'm not saying if there is or isn't in any particular episode, right? Um, but so far there hasn't been, and okay. people have been, been watching and listening, yeah. you know, they're, they're getting that Wanda theme pounded into their brain. And by the time we get to those, those last episodes, um, and I get to play with that Wanda theme in different ways, it'll have that much more resonance. Um, and that's just not possible in like a 90 minute feature film. I love these tidbits of Easter eggs, things you can mention that are, not specific to get you in trouble because yep. I just like this whole show was set up from the very beginning to be an illusion to not be real and so even my wife when I told her like basically the synopsis she's like oh I wish you didn't tell me that because now I know it's not real I'm like that this whole thing there's nothing real about any of this it's a superhero show but it's so fun I, I feel like um 
I'll be curious to see how it evolves. The thing I wanted to ask you next, next, next was um, in 2015, I had a chance to kind of be a fly on the wall with you when you were at the Sundance Institute Film and Sound Design Lab, which was at Skywalker Sound. And I remember one thing that really came out, which was you were emphasizing um, specific kind of like skill sets and tools. And one of them that you really kind of, I think, enjoy is modular synthesizers or just yeah. now not to go like too far off off course but i want to ask you the did, did that play into any of this like how did how did that background and your love for it play into how you are um you know thinking about compositions um that's a great question i what i love about modular sense is the unpredictability of it the the way i mean for, for your listeners who don't understand a modular synth is like a if you can imagine a regular synthesizer with a keyboard and knobs, but turned inside out um, so that all the electronics are exposed and then you can freely disconnect wires and reconnect them in ways that um, um, the manufacturer maybe never intended or never predicted. Um, and you get this incredible flexibility uh, for making just wild noises and sounds. Um, it, it feels when you're, playing that instrument that it has a mind of its own and it's it feels a little bit like you're taming a wild beast um it's it's hard to explain that the 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 other allure of it is the physical aspect of it you're you're connecting cables from one jack to another sort of like an old uh telephone patching station um and then you're you're twisting knobs and, and pushing buttons and the experience of that um of touching the hardware and and it being mostly anyway, analog um, makes, gives you a, a real connection to the instrument that you don't otherwise get when you're playing with virtual versions of synthesizers on a laptop, for example. Um, and it's particularly challenging to make something that's really musical with it. They're great for making um, bleeps and bloops it's a little tougher to make music with it. That is a challenge that I've taken on with Gusto. Um, I have videos on YouTube of me performing pieces. Yes, yeah. Um, and um, um, the, the other thing about Modular Sense is that it's very ephemeral. There is no save button. Um, the, it, especially if you go and look at some of my videos, you'll see a, a, a tangle, a huge tangled mess of cables. Um, it's impossible to document where every cable goes and what every knob position is. So what you have in the moment, you need to either capture or just enjoy and experience because it's gonna be gone. As a result, it's really not very conducive to film scoring where I need to keep my work super organized. I need to make multiple versions of everything. I need to go back to versions if I have to. I need to be able to recall cues with absolute precision so it's not a great instrument for film scoring the way i found that i've been able to use it is um you know while i'm making sounds with it if i hear something i like i'll just capture it mm -hmm. just record it and then i have an audio snippet that i can then incorporate maybe into into one of my pieces excuse me into mm -hmm. one of my film score pieces and i i have done that um i did a movie with clive owen called anon on Netflix a couple of years back. Um, and that has a lot of my modular work in it. Um, and um, I have a couple projects coming up with filmmakers who are excited about my experience um, with modular synths and who are encouraging me to, 
to use that as as an experimental tool. Um, we'll see if that if that yeah. works out or not. But I'm definitely very excited to try. Yeah, there's a few of you out in the film music composing world who I know. Like I spoke with Mark Isham, who has a love yeah. affair with it. Yeah. Uh, I think Joe Trapanese and Hans Zimmer, like Hans Zimmer is, I think, like fading. Yeah, Hans wall <laughs> in the back of his studio. Yeah. It's not for everyone, but I just wanted to point it out because I know it's so, it's it's a part of, of your DNA. It's where, you know, as, as a composer, obviously it's a big inspiration for you. So I was curious to see how that's kind of, maybe it's seeped into your your composition or, you know, your, your stuff you're doing for Timothy. It, it TV. absolutely has. I haven't really yeah. gotten into it in a couple of years, um, but um, it so happens that, you know, as we speak, um, I'm setting up uh, a, a modular workstation just in the next room over in my basement here in my house. Um, and, um, you know, um, when I'm done with WandaVision in a few days, I'm going to have some time off and I'm really looking forward to diving back in. That's great. Um, so for you, did you always work out of your home? Did you always have a home setup or what, what was oh, your workflow? It's just new for me since March, okay. since the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Um, I always had a studio. I have a really nice studio in Santa Monica. But I've found over the years, even before the pandemic, that um, filmmakers were coming to visit me less and less. And that was one of the main reasons why I built myself a really nice studio is so that I would have a really comfortable place and frankly, an impressive place for my clients to come and work with me. Um, but I found uh, as the years go on that um, um, the filmmakers I work with find it more convenient for me to come to them. So I will go to, you know, for, for Frozen 2, I believe, we had one meeting at my studio and the entire rest of them, you know, dozens. Um, I went to their editing rooms at Disney and we reviewed my work there. That's great. Um, which, yeah. which is fine, but it just means that I don't really need a studio as much. And of course, when the pandemic hit, I moved um, a, a small, um, you know, the, the minimum of what I needed just to get my writing done yeah. here in my, um, you know, um, in, in, I'm in my basement right now in my it's a very nice theater. basement. I like yeah. it. Looks good. Yeah. Let's, get, let's get the tour. It's a home movie theater, as you can see. So, so, so if you're listening to the audio podcast, which you should watch the video version, you can see how a basement or a room in a house can look like a professional studio. <laughs> yeah. Um, so cool. And, and, and I've found that I really enjoy working at home. I like um, the comfort of it. I like not having to drive to the studio. Um, and, um, I've frankly gotten used to it. And I think yeah. like many of us during the pandemic, we've all learned that, um, um, a lot of us anyway, have learned that we don't really need to go to the office as much as we used to, if at all. And I'm definitely in that, in that category. Not only that, I don't even need yeah. to be in LA. Um, Amazing. so, so uh, like, like many other of my colleagues, uh, I, I'm casting a wary eye to, uh, to some other spots uh, outside of LA to maybe um, um, pick up stakes and move to, but uh, that's not, that not in a couple of years. Probably I Iceland. Like we, are we staying in the U S no, you, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> you don't have to say, no, I'm, from, I'm from Canada. So oh, okay. that would be an option. Um, yeah. Um, there's also some, um, I'm also looking uh, actually in the, in the high desert and near town area. There are some, some nice properties there, but um, you know, that's in the next couple of years. We'll Don't give it. away your secrets. Everyone's flocking to, to Nashville and you know, all these places. And uh, the desert's a pretty hot market right now. Too, yeah. So I don't think it's a secret. I'm so happy that you brought that up. Thank you for that feedback. Cause a lot of people are afraid. I mean, obviously you're established, like, yes, you can work and be wherever you want, but I want you to maybe even take that answer a little further. 
what to you is essential to get your job done? Hardware, software, um, you know, what do you need in that room to do the work that you do and not focus on obviously like the best case scenario of working with the world-class, you know, symphonies and whatnot. What are some of the fundamentals for your setup? Um, well, the main digital audio workstation I use is Cubase. Um, I also use uh, Ableton Live. Um, uh, that is basically virtually, of course, connected to Cubase and runs alongside it. Um, I use Ableton Live for the more um, um, processed and programmed ideas. Um, you know, if I if I'm recording a bunch of modular synth ideas, I'll bring them into Ableton. And, and run them that way, whereas Cubase is a little bit more for the uh, orchestra side. Um, so I, I run that on a on a Mac Pro. Um, it's an old Mac Pro. I probably will get one of the new ones soon. Um, and there is a PC that um, hosts all of my orchestral sample libraries. Um, so well, that yeah, what what are some of those libraries? What are the ones that you favor? Oh gosh, um, a lot of them are, are Spitfire, uh, mm -hmm. some East West. And um, honestly, though, though earlier in my career, I was I was a total nerd for this stuff. Um, these days, I rely more on people on my team to make sure that I have uh, the latest and greatest. So yeah. I couldn't even, I couldn't tell you specifically what they all are. Um, and that's that's essentially it. I mean, that's that's all I need to do my work. Um, though it's fun and and incredibly inspiring to work with hardware since. Um, yeah. The, the virtual ones inside the computer are great. Um, they're much more practical for scoring anyway. Um, and I have a nice selection of them in software uh, on my computer. Um, and so that's, that's really all I need. Um, you know, a good set of speakers. Um, a, hot, a hot meal in a warm bed and you're good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting to, you know, be, you know, I've always worked out of my home. I've always had a home studio. All my post-production is I'm able to do here composers have traditionally have had that writing room in their home and that, you know, or wherever it may be their office, but they've always had, it's a very um, insular, you know, private space that usually you don't need many things, you know, pen, paper, and maybe yeah. a guitar or keyboard. So it's, yeah. it's so great to hear that you're recognizing yeah. while it might be important to be in LA so you can physically attend events and whatnot, it's not essential. And I, I just want to emphasize that to, you know, the listener that, I love it when people bring up questions like, what should I move to LA? And it's like, where yeah. are you? Like, no, like if you're somewhere else, like stay there. Like, I think, I no. think with each passing year, especially after this year, the answer is increasingly, no, you don't have to be in LA. I mean, well, just make sure you have internet connection. Like yeah, we'll course. start there, internet connection and maybe some running water and, and you're good. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So to close the loop on WandaVision, what would you say to, um, you know, to yourself before you started this project? What, what, what things would you like, what tips or what, what kind of things do you now have that you, you wish you maybe knew then when, before you started the project, if that's even uh, possible? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I, I, I am lucky because um, of my experience with Marvel. Um, I know the process that they like to work with in post-production. Um, and I'm ready for it, not only in terms of um, uh, the logistics and my team and, and how we can get all the work done when it needs to get done, but also like emotionally and psychologically. Um, you know, there's no, there's no panic. Um, there's no freaking out when things start to go uh, completely crazy uh, in the last stages of a project. 
you know, I'm, I'm ready for it, not only mentally, um, but also logistically. Um, so I, it's, it's for, for anyone beginning a big project that's going to be a lot of work um, that maybe is, that you have a sense is going to be a little crazier or more labor intensive than your past work. Um, you know, there's no substitute for experience, but plan ahead as much as you can. Um, creatively, um, I, I was really lucky to have that month or so before we actually got into scoring, um, to, to work on themes and to, to understand which themes that I would need. Um, and you know, I, I that's a, that's a, something you hear a lot of my colleagues talk about as well. If you're, if you have strong themes, if, I mean, assuming that you want to write a, a score that's thematically driven. Um, if you have strong themes before you start writing, you're halfway there because you can sit down and look at a scene and you're not starting with a blank page. You're, the first decision you're going to make is which theme would be appropriate here. And then the next decision is, um, you know, how am I going to dress it up? How am I going to present it? That might be different from other ways, but it's not a blank page. It's not what on earth am I, am I going to write? Um, and it's such an enormous help to have that, that theme Bible um, before you sit down to, to get into actually looking at scenes. Um, it speeds up the process greatly and I think mm. believes enhances the finished product as well. It makes everything cohesive and feel like one piece. That's amazing. I'm glad that you, you have maybe the distance or the perspective to recognize those things. Because sometimes you come out of a project and you're just exhausted and you just like you're a mess and it really takes everything out of you. I, I think it's kind of, it's unique. Uh, that was me a week ago, right? Oh, now, was it? Oh, okay. Yeah, right now I'm, I'm, I'm there's, <laughs> there's the light at the end of the tunnel is, is not at the end of the tunnel. It's like right yeah. there. Like I'm, I'm giddy with excitement um, yeah. to be, to be done. It's a huge accomplishment. The show is great. People love it. It, it just feels great. Yeah. It's, it's to me, it's, um, it's so telling how, how the process was, when you talk to people at the end, if if they want to talk about it, if they're excited, if they feel like it was a worthwhile endeavor, many times, not always, I'm just making an assumption really, which is you might take a project just because you you have nothing else on your your schedule and you want to fill in some time and heck, why I'd rather be doing something than nothing. And I, you know, I'm I'm so happy that you were the guy who had a chance to do WandaVision. I'd be curious because this show is not going away. It's gonna be around. I, I don't even I'm not even sure if they even announced, you know, the next season, but for me, just knowing the success and the potential for episodic Marvel, I mean, there's been a few on Netflix and some other platforms, you know, that they've rolled out. Yeah, but it's, I'm not be, sure that, yeah. I don't know if there's going to be a second season anytime soon. Of course, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I, um, my understanding is, um, you know, from the plan that Marvel laid out a month ago in their in their big, um, uh, Disney had a huge announcement where they laid out all their Star Wars and Marvel and, and Fox plans. Yeah. And, um, you know, they have a lot of these miniseries planned. Um, so I think it's more likely that, uh, you know, if I'm lucky enough to work on another one, it would be not WandaVision season two, but one of these other shows first. Sure. They, you just put it out into the universe. We're going to push it along. And who knows? I mean, yeah, it's, it was really incredible when they rolled out the what the season, what the shows are and everything. It's really yeah. exciting. I just I feel like it gives um, not only the audience, but also the creative community to to explore these 
these amazing IPs and these characters in a way that we haven't seen them. I mean, Mandalorian is a great example of that when people are just Fantastic like, example. Love that yeah, why, why do we need feature films when we can have like five times the amount of storytelling through yep. the lens of, you know, Mandalorian. Um, so to, to really wrap up our conversation, you know, I feel like many times people are so curious about getting a start and it's not, I'm not asking the question of how do you start the industry? I mean, I asking you the question, how does one not lose sight of the goal, which is I want to become a film composer. I'm committed. And what are some of the, the things that people can do, whether it's a manager, an agent, um, collaborating, working under other composers? What are the things that maybe helped your career or things that you've seen that have been successful? Um, well, my approach to agents and managers has always been um, a soft one. Um, I never went after them. Um, I, I let them reach out to me. So I was, um, um, I was really a self-starter. I hustled for my own gigs early in my career. Um, and I did work for another composer for a year, um, TV composer, legendary TV composer, Mike Post. Um, who, and and the, the year that I spent working for him was incredible. I learned so much about um, how, how the sausage is made, really, um, and how it's sold. Um, watching Mike um, work a room to sell something that he wrote to his his collaborators was really something, and and just seeing how um, how much of a well oiled machine he he had going at the time. He, was, he had multiple TV series going. Um, that was huge for me. He was really a great mentor, and so yeah, I would definitely say if you can find work for an established composer. That's a great way to um, get an understanding of um, exactly day in and day out what you need to do to to do this job. There's only so much you can learn in in school, um, and there's nothing like the real world experience. I, you know, for, for me, I would just say, especially the early parts of the career where you don't have credits, you know, just keep writing every day, keep your chops honed. Um, and another thing that I did that I can recommend now, there's a lot of film schools out there, tons of students making tons of short movies. They all, not all, but most will need original scores. There are great opportunities to work on these short student films um, and just get experience, not only putting music to picture, which takes a little bit of practice, um, but also collaborating with uh, another person whose vision, really it's your job as a composer to serve, not the other way around. And that takes even more practice, I believe, um, to to get in the right mindset, um, uh, psychologically, emotionally, to take criticism of your work and not get defensive or argumentative, and to really understand that you you're expected to be a team player on a project. That you you need to have the the film's best interest at heart first, and how you and your music looks. Um, to other people is secondary. Um, so it's really just about like removing your ego from the process and just being uh, uh, an artist that uh, that filmmakers really enjoy working with. Um, that's that's the secret sauce to a long career. <laughs> there is secret sauce. There is a secret. There is a silver bullet. So thank you. That's phenomenal. It's it's always a hard one to ask people. Everyone's journeys are so different. No one has one. There's no one right way to to go about it. But obviously your passion and your, your unique voice and everything that you bring to the table is 
is evident that people are attracted to your style. It's, it was it was really um, incredible just to see the evolution. Looking back on you know your your credits and your IMDb of your career, and that, I think that's a great way for people you know to look at someone as a, a very long journey. It's not just I mean, any of the films I mentioned from Frozen alone, like you could have had, you know, that could have been a career in and of itself, just that. But obviously you've continued. So congratulations. It's just so exciting to see how your careers just continue to grow and, and get even Thanks, better. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so for folks who want to find out more, obviously Christophbeck.com is a great place. Where else are you lurking around on the internet? Where, where else? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure when I last updated that website. It could be a while. Um, um, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, and of course, um, check out um, those WandaVision soundtracks on, uh, on yes. Spotify. They're doing one a week. They're doing a soundtrack for each episode like they did for the first season of Mandalorian, um, which is fantastic. It's, a great it's so cool. It's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome to see them kind of drip out the music. Uh, yeah. I think when they first reached out to me, they only had the first two episodes, and I was like, "But there's, I know there's so many more decades yeah. that we're going to explore." So, yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Chris, thank you so much. Uh, I'm super grateful for your time, and obviously, you know, to celebrate WandaVision, which I feel like here us in quarantine town love a good escapism story. So, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. It's been great. Thank you guys so much for watching. If you enjoyed today's discussion, please feel free to subscribe to our audio podcast and YouTube channel where you can find out about more upcoming topics and shows and projects that we'll be covering throughout the year. And if you like audio and you like podcasts, then I think you should check out the Audio Podcast Alliance. The goal behind the Audio Podcast Alliance is to help bring more great sound stories out into the community. So definitely check out some of these shows, subscribe, and you can find out more information about some of the great stories being created about sound. Mm -hmm.